I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm speaking with Dave Curry, aka Black Dave. Black Dave is a musician and visual artist who uses Web3 tools to build community around his work. But here's the thing about Dave. Unlike a lot of artists who migrated to Web3 after building an audience in Web2, Dave started his music career here. He is, in every sense of the term, a Web3 native musician. We get into Dave's Web3 origin story and explore the fundamental questions about experiencing music on Web3. Dave argues that the friction of Web3 onboarding, as compared to the ease of pressing play on Spotify, attracts a certain kind of user who is more proactive about their consumption of art. And that's a good thing. These are the kind of users who want to govern their favorite song like a DAO, collect album art variations as NFTs, and buy social tokens whose utility is merely to fund an artist's idea. Black Dave has experimented with all of these and more in his Web3 journey, so let's get right into it. Dave, welcome to Validated. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so pumped to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. So one of the pieces I really want to start out with here is you started your career as a musician in Web3. What does it really mean to be a Web3 native musician? The thing that has sort of set me apart from a lot of my peers who have had traditional music careers before getting into Web3 is that my journey really started here. My earliest fans started in Web3. I was someone who was onboarding people into NFTs through Clubhouse and started to get early fans through that before I even minted my first NFT, um, especially my first music NFT because my first NFT wasn't actually a song. It's not like I don't have music on Spotify and on Apple Music, but it's that the priority is the music that I release on chain. Yeah, that's super interesting. So like, when you're thinking about that distinction. What does the space allow you to do in Web3 that maybe you can't do in Web2? Or or why was, I think, I think most people would look at being a Web3 native musician and be like, oh, this seems harder than doing it the Web2 way. What about the Web3 way like felt right for the way you wanted to enter the space? What I think is interesting about the traditional avenues of gaining fans and releasing music is that the more places you do it, the more silos you exist in. I think something that's really useful about Web3 is that as long as I have the token address, I can direct everyone to one place, no matter where they participated in my journey. So as someone who's used a a bunch of different platforms to release, I can say, okay, cool, everyone go to this website, and no matter which NFT of mine you have, no matter where you got it, you can get in or you can do the thing. Because if you think about like, if I have Bandcamp, or if I have a song in iTunes, if you download the song on Bandcamp, you can't go to iTunes and listen to the song. If you buy the yeah. song on the Amazon store, you can't go on Bandcamp and download it. And so with using smart contracts and addresses and things like that, I'm able to say, okay, everybody go to my website. And if you have the token, the song is there for you to download. Not only that, but I can I can use it for other things like merchandise and like tickets and whatever other experience I, I want to create. And then... This is a bit of a contentious take. You know, the music NFT market hasn't found its value in the same way that the art NFT market has. But I'm able to give people things that theoretically will be of value later. I can airdrop things to these people. And as we continue to move more and more into a digital world, that's the reason that I think NFTs matter. 
they'll have things that were really exclusive to get because they had to be there. And I think something about music is that a lot of it you have to be there in order to really get what was so special about music at that time. It's kind of like if you listen to your parents talk about music and like the music they grew up on and, and the bands they may have seen, they'll talk about it in a way that you're like, this is just a CD, you know? And they're like, no, this is the greatest. And I think that that's really, really important in music is that you had to be there, whether it's physically or digitally. Yeah, yeah I think that's such an underappreciated point of the streaming revolution, if we're going to call it that, is that removing an idea of ownership from your relationship to music and your relationship to art. I mean, you can make an argument that no one ever actually owned the CD. They were just licensing it. Like, you weren't allowed to actually go and, like, broadcast it on the radio or something like that. But there's something physical about having a record or a CD or making a choice even in a digital purchase to say, I'm going to buy this thing. I'm not just going to browse through title and click on something interesting to me. Yeah, and, and I think so much of that, especially in music, is tied to the story of the artist, how you feel about the artist. Something that is very, very different from traditional music in Web3 is that the artists are really, really present on the ground with the fans. And because of that, they're able to find out more who we are. It's it's almost like a, a hyper social media in a way. And because of that, you know, I've been able to sort of meet people, gain fans, gain supporters that will support me no matter what, in the same way that I would support my favorite artist no matter what. And I think that that's really cool because one thing about me is I'll watch an artist's interview and that'll like have a big effect on whether or not I want to listen to their music. And I think Web3 is really similar in that way. And then when you talk about the ownership side, the people who have the NFTs, they truly have the power to sell it to someone else. And I think that that adds another layer. As somebody who comes from MMORPGs, someone who buys weapons and armor and things like that, and then I can put it on the market in the game, now I'm able to actually realize like a, a real financial gain from it. And I think that that's so special for people who are getting in on what I'm doing, especially as someone who... As Web3 was coming in, I was at the very beginning of my career. So as I grow, hopefully the assets associated with me grow in value as well. I have some friends who are musicians. They all have a myriad of complaints about the Web2 music industry. I think if you look at folks who are on YouTube as YouTubers, they all hate YouTube. They all have massive complaints about it, right? Almost anyone who makes their money as a creator doesn't really like how these platforms are structured. But there really hasn't been another option to go mass market. But hearing you kind of talk about your relationship both to Web3 and musicians and artists that you personally enjoy the work of or believe in, I don't want to call it artisanal, but there's something that feels like it's much more grounded in a sense of community than a streaming platform can deliver. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, totally agree. I think the the thing that's really interesting here is that with streaming, a lot of that listening is really passive. A lot of that listening comes on the back of you doing something else. In in Web3, there are a lot of experiences, I think, where there are people who, and I've heard this before, who collect a lot of music NFTs but don't actually listen to a lot of the music, but they're very, very keen on supporting the person. And then I hear the other side where there are people who only collect music that they would listen to, and then what they do is they create playlists of all of the NFTs that they own. But both of those people, I think, without regard to why they collect, um, have a connection with 
with me, the artist or any artist, and and they want to make use of that and, and show support in the most direct way they can. And then I think like, you know, I said this just a second ago, but like on the other side of that, they can realize something as I grow. And I think there are people who are really, really excited to get in early. It's like when you hear about someone who says like, oh, I listened to them when they had so-and-so amount of listeners. Yeah. And I think that Web3 is a lot of that. And especially when you double that with how, how much space Web3 has to grow in terms of adoption, not only were you early in the artist, you were early on the blockchain. And that's like a double cultural level up or a double cultural flex. And so it's super exciting in that way. I'm curious to go down this line of questioning. It's a little bit different than what we've been talking about. But I had a friend who used to work for a very independent record label. And one of the things that they did for the longest time is they wouldn't put their music on streaming because they felt like streaming was through that passive listening experience that you mentioned, they felt like it was almost a form of appropriation of music. That like the actual culture of what they were trying to build, the, the convenience actually was a barrier to what the artist's intent was with the work that they were trying to do. And that, you know, if you go back to the days of like buying like actual high quality files off the internet, and you had to load them on a flash drive and plug them into your stereo or something like that to actually access like a flack of a song or something like that. Um, it feels like Web3 is kind of maybe the next generation of uh, by making something slightly less accessible, but still easy enough to figure out, you can kind of keep the integrity of what an artist might be going for. Absolutely. And oh, I feel like there's a phrase, you know, Anything, anything worth having is worth fighting for, is the phrase I'm looking for. And I believe that's true in music. The hard part about, I think, Web3 and music is you have people who may be into what you're doing and may be into the culture of what you're doing. And I'm a firm believer that culture is king or queen, depending on, you know, whoever. And with that, I think that there are people who are embedded in the culture that you're creating in Web3 but haven't found Web3. So you kind of have two cultural barriers in front of you. But... If you're someone who is using the technology as part of your toolkit, then it's very important, I think, that the people who listen to your music or consume your content are in both cultures. We're, I think, at a, at a phase where we're trying to figure out how to make things easier for everyone who wants to listen to music in Web3 or wants to consume an NFT or use any of the tech, but we're not there yet. And these barriers actually make the connection deeper. And so I totally agree. And on top of that, I think a lot about how like how important it is or how important it was. I still think it's important, but some people might feel a little differently. How important it is to experience your favorite artists live. I think there are artists that I've loved that I saw live and felt a little less in love with. And there are artists that I didn't love that I saw live and I was all about. And so I think that it's really important to have these experiences that require a little bit more work, but actually bring you closer to the artist. One of the things that I really missed during the pandemic was that ability to go to a live show. Because you're right, there's just, even if it's not the energy of the crowd, there's something different about that live performance component. And also that you kind of had to work for it a little bit. You had to get in a car or get on the subway and actually go somewhere and set aside time. It wasn't just like a passive experience. Yeah, and that's the best, I think. And not only that, but thinking about not just you, but getting in the car with your friends and all being excited about it. Or, you know, I come from the era of forums and going online and talking to everybody about it, or even going on SoundCloud and looking at all the comments and then seeing like 
it's, there's just so much, I think, culturally that comes to be when you're having that real experience. But that real experience does come with barriers because digital has made things so easy. What would you describe as the culture of what you're trying to build or curate? Uh, and how does Web3 fit into that? So for me, Web3 is kind of the, the vehicle of a lot of my cultural ideas. I'm someone who grew up playing in rock bands. I'm someone who grew up watching anime. I'm someone who grew up really into streetwear and sneakers and also making rap music, which is primarily what I do now. And so for me, those are the cultural points. I really just think about Web3 as another means to proliferate that culture. I think that there are a lot of people, especially in Web3, who are fans of anime. I think there are a lot of people in Web3 who are fans of sneakers and streetwear and fashion. And so what I'm doing is I'm trying to create as many great experiences as I can around those cultural ideas. You know, in, in my Discord server for a project I work on, we don't have an NFT chat. We only have cultural chats. It's a, an anime chat, a fashion chat, a sneakers chat, a gaming chat. And we don't, we don't have an NFT chat. If you want to talk about NFTs, feel free. But we're not particularly interested in NFTs as much as we are in using the technology to push the culture. And so culture, like I said earlier, is king or queen. And so that's how I try to move is culture first. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fascinating. And so you mentioned that a lot of this kind of came to you through hanging out on Clubhouse a bunch. I miss I miss Clubhouse. I think it was like a very interesting discovery platform for communities and in a way Absolutely. that like Twitter at its best can be. What was that process like of going from hanging out on Clubhouse to actually doing your first drop and and how'd that process go? So I got on to Clubhouse at the end of 2020, a bit before like the NFT boom, quote unquote. And I got on actually because of music. Atlanta rap music was running Clubhouse for the longest time. And around that time, I'm from South Carolina, so close enough. And when you're in the South, it's all kind of one place. And so I managed to find an invite on the Clubhouse. My friend had gotten one from his manager who had gotten one from a friend. It was all these music people. And I get on and uh, and I'm going in all these music chats and then I eventually uh, start going into crypto chats and there are very few of them and then I started hearing about NFTs. Um, and this was in December of 2020 and so I found a a clubhouse room that was like how to make an NFT in five days. That was the that was the name of it and it was like five one hour clubhouse rooms. I went in and uh, on day two I minted my first NFT. No clue, just I, I had crypto that I had bought in 2017, so I already had crypto. I didn't have to go through the whole like Coinbase verification process that everyone else in the class had to. And I minted my first NFT, and it was just an unused cover for an EP that I was going to put out. And when I did that, it was like, okay, this makes sense. But uh, once that happened, I think January came around, people came around, and then everything went crazy. And I actually spent a ton of time onboarding in Web3. I I like to brag that I've probably onboarded thousands of people into Web3. I spent 8, 10, 12 hours a day on Clubhouse, just sitting on stage, just teaching people about NFTs. If they had questions, I would answer them. If, if they had questions about how the blockchain worked, I would answer it. If they had any questions, I would just answer them. And so that's actually how I built a lot of my community was through onboarding. But on top of that, just like that energy was so insane. And I think, you know, Something that a lot of people love to talk about, Board Ape Yacht Club, 
wouldn't have done what it did without Clubhouse. I think it was it was the perfect storm, you know, where an, an NFT dropped that people were interested in, and then people were able to go onto Clubhouse and talk about it. The same way that I was talking about how uh, when you go to a show with your friends, you're all super excited and you all talk about it, and then you get more pumped for it, and then maybe you buy the shirt, and maybe you buy the CD, and maybe you buy the sweater or whatever, and... I think that's kind of what was happening on Clubhouse was there was this infectious energy um, around NFTs. And then I think when we all moved to Twitter, it sort of shifted a lot, I think, towards people wanting to get more in a promotional mode and more into like a professional and like a businessy mode as opposed to a, um, a really artistic space that I think was on Clubhouse. Yeah, this is one of those things I've heard so many different opinions and views on, which is the intersection of Clubhouse and NFTs and then creating work on the blockchain. There's an interesting pipeline there for you because one of the criticisms of Clubhouse in Twitter and wider culture was this was just a bunch of VCs hanging out with each other and talking to each other. And this sort of became a symbol for gatekeeping of the conversation and controlling access to who can participate in that kind of conversation. I, I think what I'm kind of trying to like get at here is like your experience feels like something that was is completely different from that narrative around what that sort of clubhouse into NFT creator transition was like. You know, as you're mentioning, like, yeah, I noticed this too on Clubhouse. Like Atlanta was like the place that a lot of the Clubhouse stuff yes. was happening before the NFT boom. Did you see a change in the platform as both NFTs and Clubhouse started to take off? Yeah. So, you know, I was still largely into trap music, largely into Atlanta rap music. I was working on music with like artists in Atlanta, producers in Atlanta, et cetera, et cetera. And on the NFT side, there were a lot of people who weren't into rap music making NFTs. Yeah, And I think on the other side of that, something that a lot of us have probably forgotten about was how hard fine art pushed back against NFTs in that time period. And so we were all... So much of fine art is just gatekeeping. Yes. Oh, <laughs> exactly. And so... We, the NFT community, had banded together around a version of a common cause that was the things we are doing is fine art. And I think that that's so interesting. And even for me as a musician, I try to proposition this idea that music is also fine art, which is another conversation for another day. But then what happened was people wanted to become influencers, people wanted to become well-known, people wanted to become big in the space, and they wanted to be the face of it. And so what ended up happening was, I feel like a lot of sort of like factions arose in a sense, you know? There were people who really loved certain communities and really hated other communities. When I was doing onboarding through Clubhouse, I was like a like a core member sort of of the first NFT club on Clubhouse. And it wasn't called NFT. So it was, you know, like the, there was a club that called, was called NFT that showed up after. And so it's interesting how when everyone started to build their own communities, I didn't realize that everyone or I didn't realize how many people wanted to be the star of the show. And I think as as Clubhouse gained more and more traction, as they opened up more, as more people were getting into NFTs, everyone wanted to be the star because they're on top of, you know, being able to make money through selling NFTs, there was a lot of money in consultation. There was a lot of money in just doing all sorts of things that wasn't necessarily making art. 
but the only way, not the only way, but the main way that people's value is perceived was through things like how many followers they had, how many people showed up to the spaces they had, how many other people would say good things about them because the space was so early that we didn't have things that could really validate you, you know? And so your followers was that thing. It was, it was very web too, social media in a way. Super interesting to think about, but I didn't care. And I, I still don't really care. I have a lot of followers, not a ton, you know, but I have a lot of followers, but all I'm interested in is getting the info out, getting my work out, and getting the culture out. But yeah, I think as it grew, it, it got a little more catty. There are, uh, there are, all, I have tons of funny catty stories. And then I think as it grew as well with the whole influencer thing, something that I think goes untalked about, um, and I, I'm confident it still happens now, is a lot of hosts were getting paid tons of money for those spaces. Yeah, it's like payola in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That was another reason to have a big following on Clubhouse. And everyone would be like, well, you can turn Clubhouse into money if you're following Sai enough. And I, I don't disagree. People were doing it. I just think that it was uh it wasn't it wasn't a genuine move. And I think it um I think part of the the reason that that first bull run in 2021 has the connotation that it does is because people were taking money everywhere for everything and we should have moved a little bit more considered. So walk us through, like, what collections do you have at this point? How do people actually engage with them? And, and what are they buying when they join the community? Awesome. So I have a ton of collections, of course, since I started in 2020, and it's now 2023. My first real collection that I had put out was a nod to streetwear called Flips. What I had done was I had taken logos of brands, flipped them to have crypto names instead. So like, you know, like a... Like I had the Chiquita Banana logo, but it said Ethereum instead of Chiquita and things like that. And that was my very, very first collection. So I didn't actually release music at first. And with that, I wasn't even sure what utility was, but I do have like, you know, the Discord server and the normal things that you would have had. Actually, Discord was barely a thing back then, but I had a Discord server already from being a Twitch streamer. So I figured out how to do token gating and blah, blah, blah. And I had a little Discord community. I've got about 300 people in my Discord. Um, I've got about 200 collectors, so that tracks. But I'd done that collection, and then I did my first music collection in March of 2021. I think this may have been around the time that Blau had done his large NFT sale. It might have been around the time that Latasha, the, the queen of music NFTs, had showed up and dropped her first music video. And I had dropped a song and I had dropped 20 pieces of visual art with the song. But every NFT collection came with a download link to the song from IPFS. So this is when I was really learning about unlockable content and utility and things like that. And of course, I had the Discord where I would drop things and have conversations with people and things like that. It wasn't quite a collector's Discord. It was public, but there are private channels. And I continued that journey by releasing more songs on OpenSea and then moving into a couple of more curated platforms. I ended up getting on Catalog. I ended up getting on Sound. The main thing I think that a lot of people who join my communities get is just like, a, a more direct and like anytime sort of access to me. And the last thing, the most recent thing I've made um, is something called Black Dave Token, which is essentially a creative funding mechanism that I created for myself. I minted a million tokens and they cost like 20 cents a piece. And the idea is that if you buy this token, you believe in the ideas that I have. And the point is mostly that 
there are a lot of projects getting funding and not so much people getting funding. But when you think about when when companies acquire other companies, sometimes they just want the people who work at that company. And I feel like there are a lot of people in Web3 like that, that you're like, man, I really want to find a way to like get that person, even if not the project, because I believe in what they're doing. And so this is a, a skewed version of that where you don't actually get me, but you do uh, sort of join the community of folks who support me. And then I talk to you guys about some of the ideas I have and some of the things I want to make in Web3, because something that I'm finding that's really tough in Web3, but I'm really dedicated to, is showing that I'm more than a musician. And I think a lot of people in Web3 are more than the thing that we know them for, and they want to be more than the thing that we know them for, but they haven't found the right vehicle. And so a lot of it's just community vibes, but yeah. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news, and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto, but it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. So you have some songs that are also community governed, right? Talk to me about that. Yeah, for sure. I dropped a song called Sharp back in 2021, at the end of 2021. And I dropped it as a fractionally owned NFT. So a bunch of people could get in. And once it reached the three Ethereum price point, it was sold to the, to the community. There were 42 people who supported that. And what I did was I created a governance model around it and allowed the people who were the owners of the NFT fractionally to vote on the future of the song. So the first thing that I did that I allowed everyone to vote on was I said, okay, guys, should I release this song on streaming? And they voted yes, I think seven to one. And then I, the second thing I said was how much should I pay myself? And there were only two options. And I think this is kind of one of the things about creating a governance mechanism around your music is that you don't have to allow them to to make every choice for you. You can decide what choices they get to make. But it, I think it has to be deep enough that they feel connected to the song when they make that choice. So I did those two things. Then the market crashed. And I am waiting. Uh, I'm actually about to restart soon. But the next sort of set of choices will be around things like marketing. will be like, okay, what website should I submit this song to for playlisting? Do you guys know anyone I should email? Um, what should the music video look like? How much of this quote unquote treasury should I spend? Because out of my payment, the rest of the money was the treasury for the song. So it's like, how much of this treasury should I spend on my video? How much of this treasury should I spend on marketing? And allowing the community to be involved in that. Something that I think is really special about this sort of model is that if the people who collect the songs have the ability to help the song go further, they may feel inspired to because they're invested in it. And if and if that helps the song, then when they sell it on the secondary market, they receive benefits from it. And so this is an early experiment in that. And so I'm just experimenting. I'm having a ton of fun with it. Yeah, it's. I think this is fascinating because I think when most people hear a song owned by a DAO, the obvious question there is like, but what I want is the artist's art. 
Yes. I don't want like, you know, if, if you if you let every person in America determine what music sounds like, everything is going to sound like Taylor Swift and Chance. And, you know, no shade at Taylor Swift or Chance, but like you're not going to get immortal technique out of a DAO if everyone is contributing to what the actual content of the work is like. But what you're talking about is is almost kind of like a giant community owned record label at some point. Yes. Oh, that's that's I think that's an amazing way to put it. You know, it's it's that. Everyone, you know, when you talk about owning the art versus like participating in the art, I think that's kind of the thing is this is sort of an extension of the art as opposed to the final home for the art. You you create it and then you extend it to the community. The community helps you build it better. And, and this doesn't even involve changing the song, right? This is just we have this product that we want to push. And I'm really excited about that. And I think that there will be a lot of music label models that come to be over time. But I think that this model and, and variations of this model are the ones that are most exciting to me. Because when you think about the complaints that people have about traditional record labels, we as artists no longer own our music once we partner with a label. And now we have an opportunity to continue to own our music, but the people who invest in what we're up to, and I hate using the word invest, but the people who support what we're up to, um, they also can see a reward if they work towards the proliferation of that uh, of that piece of work. And so I like this idea where the artist continues to own, but the supporters also have a way to benefit. And I think that fractionally owned um, song that you then work on is is a really interesting way to go about it. One of the crazy stats that I, I had learned recently is that the average musician now tours something like four times more than they toured in the 90s. Isn't that insane? And there's great parts about that. Yeah, there's great parts about that for like us as fans. But like that's a pretty brutal system if you're also trying to produce new work. And uh, yeah, I love this idea that there, there's ways that the monetization structures can be changed where artists don't necessarily have to go and be a part of that grind in order to make a living at the stuff. Yeah, you know, I think something that I, I'm constantly at odds with, but also fully understanding of is is the thousand true fans model, where you if you have a thousand people who spend a hundred dollars, you have a hundred thousand dollars in a year. I, I love that model and I think that you know, people entering Web3, they started to sort of push that number down. They're like, it could be a hundred true fans now who want to spend a thousand dollars. I think the reality for many, many people is going to be that it's going to be somewhere in the middle. It's going to be like a five, six hundred true fans where you have, you know, 600 fans who might spend a hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars. And, and then you'll still go on tour, you'll still have merchandise, you'll still take streaming revenue, you'll still do all of the traditional things. I think what's happening with the, the narrative around the 1,000 true fans versus the 100 true fans is they're both extremes. But I think that a lot of artists still want to perform on big stages. And you can't perform on a big stage with 100 fans. You can't perform Coachella with 100 fans. And... You can live a life, you know, you can live, you can survive. And there are a lot of artists where that's their goal. I just want to own a house. I just want to get a wife. I just want to make music and, and not have to do anything else. And that's a great goal. But I think there are also a ton of artists who want to be huge and they want to continue to to try to be the biggest artist they can in the world. And I think of Web3 as a vehicle for that, as opposed to Web3 being the end all be all for that. Yeah, I, I I want to I want to tease that out more, but I think one of the things that it, you know, if someone's a musician listening to this or they're an aspiring musician listening to this, there's a magic part of your story where you go from not having released music 
to releasing it directly to Web3 and generating an audience that's, you know, substantial enough that you can do subsequent drops and subsequent releases. And, you know, this can be like the anchor of that community and that career that spirals out into other places. Where did those 100, 200, 300 loyal people for you come from? What was that process like of actually attracting them and saying, hey, I'm here in this space. This is what I'm producing. Are you interested in it? I think that went through two sort of phases for me. And I think it might go through a couple of phases for a lot of artists who enter Web3. So my specific story had a lot of onboarding involved. So I had a lot of people who were connecting to me as a person before connecting to me as an artist. A lot of people didn't even know that I had NFTs out my first few months in the space. Not until I released my first song. And so those people who were supporting me then may not have necessarily been fans of the music, but they were fans of Black Dave, the entity, or Dave, the person. And I went through that for a bit for my first couple of drops where they were selling out, but they were selling out to people who may not necessarily be fans of the art itself, but were fans of the artist which I'm fine with, right? Like I think I think that as as creatives, whatever reasons people want to attach themselves to us, we should accept and we should lean on. So I was accepting and leaning on it. And then after those first couple of drops and I started moving into the more broad music NFT ecosystem and my name started to get around a bit more, I started to get into a second space where I was finding people who were true music fans and they were looking for music that they liked. And so I was able to start to find people who were fans of the music as opposed to fans of the person. And so that was like a second sort of trip that I took. The way I think that that happened was just being present um, in those like clubhouse rooms, in those uh, Twitter spaces. I, I wrote a lot about my experience. I have a ton of things on my mirror about my journey in Web3. I think every time I drop something, I would write a long mirror post about my mindset going into it. And I believe that through that and then through good work, people who were there for the music and were there for the culture were the ones that I started finding. So now I can go into a clubhouse room or a Twitter space and people want to talk to me about anime or people want to talk to me about sneakers or people want to talk to me about the new album that came out that aligns with the music that I make. But at first, there were just people saying, oh, yeah, Dave understands the blockchain. Dave understands NFTs. And so I went through sort of two forms where it went from the Dave who was good at blockchain to the Dave who is good at music and good at culture. So there's a whole business to be made on consulting on other artists drops. And you've done a bit, little bit of that yourself. You were sort of an unofficial consultant on one of Snoop Dogg's NFT drops. Is that right? The Snoop Dogg drop was an interesting story. The way that that went was Snoop Dogg had dropped a mix on Sound.xyz, one of the major NFT music NFT marketplaces right now. And it was like a 20 to 40 minute mix. And I remember listening to it and being familiar with the artists who were on it. One of the artists that played on the very, very first song um, is this artist named Krayshawn. She um, she got a record deal back in the early 2010s, and uh, her label ended up dropping her, but she had a, a really viral record at that time, and she was on the first song, and I remember looking at it and saying, are there splits here? Like, do the artists get paid? You know, asking questions like that for all the artists who are on the mix. And I think we're still trying to figure out how DJing looks in Web3. So I was a little bit early and a little bit aggressive in my stance, but it is what it is. And then I remember listening as well and saying, none of these artists on this mix besides Snoop are in Web3. 
why are you dropping in Web3 but not working with artists in Web3? I think that's the most obvious thing you can do as someone who exists in Web3. And so what ended up happening was um, the founder of Sound had hit me up and was like, Snoop's Camp saw your tweets about this. It was a it was a series of critical tweets. And um and they're you know, they're interested in trying to figure out how to make it work. And so when they did their second drop, they actually um picked up a few artists in Web3 who had dropped on sound. So and I was one of them. So it was myself, Iman Europe, uh Heno and Maroof. The four of us had like a little sort of like Web3 section of the mix. And then on top of that, um, we were written into the splits of the of the mix. And so I thought that was a really huge move in the right direction. I think since then, too, you've seen Snoop do a lot more collaborative work where he'll put out a mixtape and he'll call on artists who are Web3 native and have them on the songs with him and then split the revenue with them. And so I think like, you know. I don't want to take full credit, but I will say that I was definitely there being vocal about the stance. I think um, it's really hard in Web3 to be critical of folks because a lot of it still is a small form of a popularity contest. You don't want to be too hard and you don't want people to be like, oh, all that guy does is talk down to people. But I do think that it's important to recognize opportunities. And that's how I try to think about when I'm uh, being critical of things in the space. When you're looking at the interplay between Web 2 and Web 3, you talked a little bit about how, you know, that can be a component of a musician's success. And that doesn't mean they they can't release their music on streaming services. What do you see as, you know, from your view, the future of that model? How does this evolve into the future and how does Web 3 fit into the music industry today? Something I've been seeing a lot lately that I think is really exciting is artists will release the song in Web 3 first. That will be sort of the catalyst to create a campaign around the song in Web 2. One really, I think, interesting example is the the artist Heno. So he has a song called Neighbors that just hit a million streams, and it dropped as an NFT first. And using this model to get NFTs to our fans that exist in the space and have them sort of help us push the song forward and push the song forward in a sense of like through the revenue that we generate through the music, we reinvest it back into the music. That's going to be something that I think we're going to see a lot of down the line, especially for independent artists. Another thing that I'm really excited about and that I'm um, personally trying this year is using NFT sales to fund merchandise. I think that's going to be something that we're going to see a lot more of. And then one of the, I think, oncoming big plays that we'll see is how NFTs and music factor into the metaverse. I think the metaverse is boring without music. The metaverse is boring with stock music, but the metaverse is fun with your favorite music in it. And so thinking about how, you know, as we move through the, towards this more and more digital like lifestyle, how music ties into people enjoying digital spaces, whether that's through games on blockchain, whether that's through games in the traditional sense that um, NFT artists may be putting out, you know, there are platforms that exist that allow you to acquire licenses to use music through the blockchain. And, and thinking about like how that can really factor into music. I think if you're just selling music NFTs, you're selling yourself short. There are so many other opportunities to make money. The same way that there are a ton of opportunities to make money in Web2, granted a lot of them are uh, hard to figure out. There are a ton of ways to make money in Web3 that don't just involve selling a music NFT. Who are some of your favorite artists 
producing music on Web3? Man, that's that's such a great question. I'm super glad you asked. I'm, I'm always like, man, I hope I have an opportunity to shout people out. Verite, she's a, a pop artist, but is one of the most Web3 experimental people that I think exists in this space. Um, someone else that I am a huge, huge fan of, I think from a from also a creative standpoint, is Jamie Cornelia. Jamie can shoot video. Jamie does graphic design. Jamie produces. Jamie is also a rapper and and puts out amazing work and, and amazing media around every piece of content that they drop. Someone else that I love who's making Latin music, reggaeton, is Excelencia. He's also another one who experiments a ton in the space. Um, he's got a social token. He's got a strong community and a strong fan base. And he and I often will nerd out on the latest NFT thing in the DMs. And then I think... The, the last one I'll throw, and this is a really interesting one, I think. Christina Spinet plays classical music. I found out about her on a Polygon-based music NFT platform, but she, I believe, plays violin and will make these sort of classical records that she puts on chain. When you think about, like, especially like the art gallery space and those art gallery metaverse spaces, being able to have someone like Christina be the soundtrack to a, a metaverse gallery is perfect. You know, I think it sets the vibe of fine art so amazingly. We'll definitely have to check them out. Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This was a fascinating conversation. You are amazing. You ask the best questions. I'm, I'm so pumped to be on this podcast in specific i'm uh i know we didn't talk about it specifically but like something that i always say is that all the hype beasts are on solana i believe that everyone who's into sneakers and rap music all the stuff that i've been talking about this whole time they're all on solana i just joined web3 so early that i haven't figured out my solana strategy yet so i'm coming for you guys uh i'm dropping music soon um but yeah i'm i'm super pumped to be here and i feel like this was such a, an amazing intro for me to all of you guys over there. So thanks for having me. Of course. And if you ever want to chat, let me know. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.